Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, and welcome to the New Books and Public Policy podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Manuel Arredondo. I'm the host of the channel, and today I'll be speaking with Travis Lupik about his book, Fighting for Space, which was released in 2017 on the Arsenal Pulp Press. Fighting for Space is an amazing book about how a group of drug users transformed one city's struggle with addiction. Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, we usually begin by learning a little bit about our guest. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? My name is Travis Lupik. I'm a staff reporter at the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver. Been my home base for, gosh, more than 10 years now. I also uh, write on a freelance basis for a few larger outlets. And as you've mentioned, in uh, 2017, I published a book called Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed One City's Struggle with Addiction. Fantastic. I'm curious, was there anything in your background that made you particularly interested in pursuing this topic? Or was it more, how did this book come to be? It was um, a fairly organic process that led me to write Fighting for Space. Um, I was working for the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver. That's a, an alt-weekly, a print publication that's published once a week. I was working there that the city paper, uh, as a general assignment reporter, you know, spending a lot of time at City Hall and, and covering topics that are big in Vancouver, like immigration and whatnot. Um, and in 2013, 2014, we in our newsroom noticed a pretty significant, a pretty sharp increase in drug overdose deaths. Uh, we'd, we'd find out about a year later that it was a synthetic opiate fentanyl that has since arrived in much of North America that was responsible for those deaths. So my boss, my editors at The Strait, said spend some time on this. And, you know, they figured it might be a couple weeks, maybe a month. Um, five years later, the, the deaths were still uh, rising and rising. And, and fentanyl and the overdose crisis had essentially become a full-time job. So that was kind of what led me... Um, to drug policy and the overdose crisis. At the same time, Vancouver had been through a similar drug crisis um, during the 1990s. And there was this, this really amazing story um, of, of harm reduction, things like needle exchange, injection sites that emerged out of that crisis of the 90s. And so I was working for my weekly paper, writing about fentanyl and, and overdose deaths happening today and realized there was this um, story of our, our, our prior drug crisis that had never really been, been told anywhere. And so the idea with, with Fighting for Space was to sort of look back at how Vancouver responded to that, that crisis in the 90s, what mistakes we made, what, what lessons we learned, what solutions came out um, of that, that first overdose epidemic. And offer them in a book to cities that we're dealing with fentanyl today. Yeah, I definitely think that's one of the most one of the you know the most impressive parts of the book is it really 
connects a story that takes 30 years to tell, but brings us to a place where the stuff that we were doing in the 90s seems um, as important or as relevant as ever um, in terms of um, advocating for policy that effectively um, that can help that can help people that are struggling with addiction. Um, I'm curious, what is that like as a, in a newsroom? Is it that you there's sort of a slow trickle and you start to sort of notice that there's more and more overdoses in the coroner's report? Or how, how do you sort of become aware in a newsroom of, of the, the fentanyl crisis? That's a good question. Um, so I, I was working at that city paper, uh, but at the same time, I was also living in a neighborhood of Vancouver called the downtown east side, which is traditionally a, a low-income neighborhood with a concentration of poverty, homelessness, mental illness, and addiction and open drug use. And so I, I was hearing the community talk about this rise in overdose deaths probably even a little bit earlier, actually, than we noticed it in the newsroom. Um, you know, with hindsight, I could say it was all fentanyl now, but but back then we really didn't know what was going on, just that people were beginning to express concerns and, and fears for something that was in the city's heroin supply. Um, but, it I mean, I'll admit it took a while to register. Um, every once in a while in any city, you know, a bad batch of drugs comes through and sadly a few people die. But it's not, um, it's not usually something that's sustained. It's not usually something that catches the newspaper to its attention. So it did, I mean, it probably took a year before we noticed that this was something that, that really deserved, um, you know, consistent attention. My, my, my editors at the Strait were, were and, then, and then my editors at the Strait were good enough to give me the time to stick with it. I mean, you know, we're like most newspapers across North America, we're a small shop these days. There's you know, only 10 or 15 of us in editorial, including editors. So devoting one full-time reporter is only, you know, what, what became my, my entire staff time to one topic um, was actually sort of unprecedented. But as the number of deaths I climbed higher and higher, and the amount of time I was giving to the topic uh, became more and more total until it, you know, it really became a full-time beat. That's interesting, and I was wondering, I mean, I think your book is really remarkable for the the access that you have. It seems like you really are able to rely on for, first-hand reporting or, or people who are really there when it was happening um, in terms of the grassroots movement in the early 90s. Um, so do you feel like being a resident of of East Vancouver, or I'm sorry, downtown Eastside, it, 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 was that really, um, that, that must have been a huge advantage in terms of your access to interview subjects? Or did you find that you had to do a lot of legwork in terms of making those connections? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the book would have turned out um, the way that it did if I hadn't been living in the downtown Eastside. I mean, there was... Um, the book was written during a pretty rapid period in late 2016, um, but but you know by 2016 I'd been living in the neighborhood for quite a few years and interviewing a lot of the same people that would appear in the book for you know, my stories that went into the Georgia Strait newspaper on a daily basis. So I had a fairly strong, I mean, and then eventually very strong relationships built up with everybody in the book that that took um really i mean years to build um 
and yeah, the, the book the book wouldn't have turned out the same way without that. You know, my um, interviews with Anne, Ling- Anne Livingston, one of the the, the key uh, female, female characters in the book. You know, our interviews happened at her apartment. You know, usually between you know, nine and nine o'clock at night at midnight. Um, uh, other interviews, you know, would happen um, at a coffee shop, um, unscheduled, just bumping into somebody as I walked down the street. It, um, yeah, a level of access wouldn't have happened without those relationships. And all of that also built uh, a real strong layer of accountability into the book and for my, my reporting for the daily paper. I mean, the people that I wrote about, um, I was always sure to bump into, you know, a day or two after anything came out. So if you, um, didn't quote someone, if you didn't quote someone entirely accurately, or if you paraphrased someone wrong, um, I, I knew I was going to hear about it. So there was also that, uh, not, not just a degree of access, but a degree of accountability and accuracy built into living in the neighborhood that I, I thought helped things, uh, help things turn out as well as they did. I definitely think one of the most powerful things about the book is how much voice you give to the individuals you interviewed and I think I'd like now to give our listeners a chance to to hear a little bit about what it was like, um, who are some of the main characters in your book, and what it was like um, hearing their stories and reporting their stories. It was such a gift to receive the time and the level of trust that I did from the main characters in Fighting for Space. I mean, I mean, it's consciously, it's it's their story that I tell there. It's, you know, it's it's admittedly told with a, you know, a bit of one-sided bias. It's, it's the story of drug users and their allies that, that is told in this book. Um, and it was just such a privilege um, for them, you know, to give me that level of trust to, to share their story. There's essentially sort of two camps in the book that start out somewhat independently and then, and then end up working together um, as you get further, further into our story. There was the Portland Hotel Society, which started as a nonprofit housing agency, a government partner that does supportive housing and that sort of thing, which started in Vancouver in 1991, founded by Liz Evans and her partner, Mark Townsend. And then there was a second group co-founded by Anne Livingston and Bud Osborne, a pair of activists and drug user organizers who established the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, a, um, a sort of a labor union equivalent, but representing the interests of drug users, fighting for things like health programs for drug users and that sort of thing. So you had these two groups form in the, in the early 1990s in Vancouver, the Portland Hotel Society and the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, Vandu with Liz Evans and Mark Townsend on one side and Anne Livingston and Bud Osborne on the other side. And and then a couple years after their foundings, there's this, there's this terrible drug crisis that arrives where overdose deaths just skyrocket through the mid to late 1990s in Vancouver, uh, tragically arriving at the exact same time as HIV AIDS hit the injection drug user population in Vancouver. So you had this concentration of poverty, mental illness and addiction that's struck by an overdose crisis at the same time that it's struck by an HIV AIDS crisis. Meanwhile, there's no healthcare services. So hep C rates are, are, are also skyrocketing. Um, you, you, you had this 
set of acute problems that the downtown east side, this impoverished neighborhood, was struggling with. And then in response, you know, these really amazing groups of uh, activists and social justice advocates with the Portland Hotel Society and Bandu um, working uh, sometimes alone, sometimes together to, to respond to these crises. And that's so. Did you experience a difference in terms of your approach to sort of the subgroups in terms of you know working with folks who are sort of more on the the advocacy side or folks who are more sort of you know active substance users or folks who are sort of really experiencing the challenges? Did you have to vary your interview styles or how did you approach connecting to so many different sources of information? Um, not so much to be honest. Um. I knew, I think I, I knew almost every character that would appear in Fighting for Space before I started writing the book because I was a local reporter who'd been, you know, living and working in the neighborhood for some time. Um, it, it did take, you know, some people a little bit longer to convince them to come on board for an entire book and the amount of time that I would, you know, have to spend talking with them and all that. It took some people to, to convince them a little bit longer than others, but, um, I mean, I mentioned before that it was just, you know, that I feel lucky to have had the opportunity and that it was such a privilege to share their story. It really was an amazing amount of trust that people placed in me. Um, it, it, you know, it was a huge help living in the neighborhood um, because, you know, I could spend uh, so much time face to face with people there without worrying about how I was going to get home later or what time I was going to get home. And, you know, I could... Um, wait at a coffee shop and then just wait till someone was free. I didn't, you know, I had flexibility on scheduling and that sort of thing. Um, there was a really great coffee shop in the neighborhood that essentially let me work there for, with, you know, free coffee for the entire year I was writing the book and you know, I'll uh, forever be indebted to Lost and Found Cafe for that. Um, it, it was really, um, you know, the benefit of living in the neighborhood that, that helped all that happen. That's great. And I think, I mean, I, again, to keep complimenting the book, I really get this feeling of they did have a ton of trust or there was a ton of trust felt towards you. I think it's clear that folks are really candid in sharing the the funny parts, the tragic parts, the really just sharing what they were going through. And it's really amazing to, um, yeah, to have the opportunity to hear those voices amplified. Um I wonder, did you had mentioned that, you know, if you had misquoted somebody or if somebody didn't like your reporting, you might hear about it right away. Is there, you don't, not naming names, but I just wonder, did, did, did anything end up surfacing that, you know, people felt like they shared too much or they didn't like the way that they were being, um, or did you have any, any struggles in terms of the reception of your writing? No, there really hasn't been anything like that. Um, you know, there are a couple points where, you know, people cringe at, you know, something they said or, or how candid um, they became during, you know, one spot in an interview or, or another spot. Um, but no, they're, you know, they're really, I mean, I think that, I think that everybody in the book recognized that this was, was a story that needed to be told. Um, we're also a few years apart from it now. You know, most of the book takes place in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, you know, and we're almost 20 years past that point now. So I, I felt that the book really benefited from people's hindsight. And, and, you know, time heals all wounds. So there was, you know, people who didn't get along so well back then who 
now look back quite fondly on, on you know, those relationships that might have been strained at the time and, and recognize that everybody was fighting for the same goal. Um, and because I think it's a story that people recognized did needed to be told and, and, and that there were important lessons there, um, feel that it, you know, regardless of maybe not looking perfect at the end of it, um, recognized it was still really worth putting it out there. Well, it's really awesome. And, you know, I think we've talked about some of the really main characters, but another beautiful thing about this book is it really touches on how it takes a village and how in the process of advocating for harm reduction strategies, I'm sorry, harm reduction policies, um, that there were just so many different people involved. Um, um, so I really appreciate, um, in terms of reading this book, you do feel a lot of respect or a lot of admiration, um, not just for the main characters, but also for the whole community. Um, I'd like to shift a little bit to just talking. Um, so I think definitely to highlight one experience the reader would have is really getting this firsthand portrayal of what it's like to instigate a grassroots movement um, in a highly marginalized or underserved area. Um, and also there's, I think another thing the reader would leave with is a lot of insight into some of the major um, sort of developments or landmarks in the process of advocating for policy change. Um, things like the port. I mean, that was, that was very much, that was very much a goal of the book. We, you know, we said cities across North America, you know, cities like um, Philadelphia, um, Pittsburgh, Toledo, Ohio, um, they're dealing with this fentanyl crisis, with this uh, opiate overdose crisis today. And Vancouver has been through something like this before. Um, we deployed a lot of new programs that had never been tried in North America um, in response to that crisis. And some of them worked and some of them didn't. Um, here's a book that outlines you know, Vancouver's mistakes and successes um let's let's give this book to other cities and you know let them learn from that prior experience of vancouver and hopefully you know, save everybody a little bit of time and and a really and a little and save lives um and it's been really neat to hear um that that's actually happened you know that i i the, the book has popped up in really interesting places i know that it's been it's been a uh, it's been very popular at city hall in philadelphia the book gets passed around the book was passed around city hall um, and is commonly, you know, is routinely brought up in, in that city's debates over supervised injection. Um, the book has a lot of attention in Boston among Boston politicians. Um, so it's been really neat to, you know, actually hear from policymakers in different cities, um, that, that have gotten touched to say they're reading it and, and picking out things that excite them there. Oh, that makes me really excited. I really appreciate that. And I think the, yeah. We commented before the interview started, I just think that the intensive journalism that you did is amplifying these crucial policy issues. And like you said, it's being heard all over North America um, and increasingly internationally. Um, do you, if you don't mind for our listeners, just some maybe some snapshots of some of the actual programs or policies that were a result of the, the, the grassroots movement um, described in the book. Um, for instance, the back alley safe use site. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about about what that is and and how how it fits into the story? Yeah, back alley was the name of a very early supervised injection facility in Vancouver. 
um, unsanctioned and illegal, to be sure. Um, let's, let's start even before then. A supervised injection facility is something that has existed in Europe um, for quite some time. Um, it, it's basically just um, any sort of room, facility, etc., where people can bring drugs without fear of prosecution uh, to use those drugs under the supervision of healthcare professionals. So instead of doing using drugs in an alley, you use them in a healthcare facility. Supervised injection facilities do not offer drugs or anything like that, um, but they offer uh, sterile uh, medical supplies and clean equipment to use drugs. So it's a place um, to minimize harm. It falls under the umbrella of something called harm reduction, uh, a wide set of healthcare policies that, just like their title says, um, reduces harm. So Vancouver had heard about um, these things over in Europe, and this is you know pre-internet days, mid nineteen nineties. So you know it takes a it takes a while to share articles and that sort of thing. But they're reading newspaper articles from Europe, saying um, that there are these things happening called supervised injection facilities, and Anne Livingston, uh, yeah, a budding activist in her late thirties, and uh, a fellow named Bud Osborne, an injection drug user, they get together and they start to talk about whether that sort of thing could happen in Vancouver. And they decided it couldn't, it was illegal, there were all sorts of hurdles, the police were very much against it, uh, but then they just went and did it anyways. They paid rent on a building in an impoverished neighborhood, the downtown east side. They found a landlord who would look the other way, and they basically just let people come in, um, and then when they used drugs there, didn't kick them out. It was you know, very basic back then. I mean, we're talking mid-1990s. Um, so, so it didn't, and this is an unsanctioned site, so it didn't have you know, registered nurses working there like Canada's injection sites do today. Um, but it was a place where people could use drugs where there would be someone present if they overdosed. And, and that's what happened. Um, people overdosed there, but there was a volunteer staff around. And when someone overdosed, um, they intervened and resuscitated that person. It, in its you know in its stripped down form, it's, it was you know barely different from your stereotypical you know flop house or crack den or whatever you want to call it, um, except that it was a little more organized. You know they had um, a timesheet, you know where they knew you know who would be working when, and it was simply a place where people could get out of the alleys and use drugs where someone was around to to catch them if they overdosed. And it would be almost a full 10 years before Vancouver, Canada's first sanctioned injection site was established. Um, Insight, which opened in 2003, but uh, Back Alley, um, you know, way back in the mid-1990s, was sort of the first organized um, unsanctioned injection site, possibly in North America, but in, in Vancouver and Canada for sure. And how did your how did how did Bud Osborne and Anne Livingston, as they reflected um, on Back Alley, did you experience them as? Um, do you mind describing just what it was like to to speak with somebody, to speak with them, and what sort of what feelings or what emotions they did, they they presented? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, Anne Livingston is is a remarkable woman who actually still lives in the same apartment complex that she was living in in the mid nineteen nineties. You know, we she's changed units, but it was in that same apartment complex where we did all our interviews that she was living in the nineteen nineties. And I mean, she she is just one of these amazing women, um, one of these amazing women who, you know, when she sees something that's wrong, um, she will fix it regardless of whether or not the solutions to that problem um, are legal or illegal. You know, if she sees something wrong, um, she will fix it. And uh, that's what she did in the 1990s. She saw hep C and HIV spreading everywhere and overdoses happening left and right. And she said, like, I mean, she said, for fuck's sake, you know, and that's her language. She could speak a little salty. (laughs) She she said, um, we're going to do something about this. So it's, you know, it started... Um, with, you know, things that were much simpler than an injection site, actually. It started by, you know, putting posters up around telephone poles in the downtown east side, again, pre-internet, and um, just saying, you know, what the hell is happening in this neighborhood? Let's do something about it. Um, Are you a drug user? Nobody cares about you, so care about yourself. Meet us in the park, because drug users were not inside, allowed inside the building. Um, Meet us in the park, and and we're going to talk about about things you want to change and we're going to do something about this and it was um, back alley that was one of the early things to emerge out of those meetings bud osborne her uh, friend and then romantic partner and then you know partner and all this harm reduction stuff had a bit of a different story uh, he was actually born in toledo ohio and grew up you know you know a very tragic very hard childhood um Father committed suicide. Mother was addicted to drugs, coping with years of sexual assault. Um, Bud was on his own at a pretty early age, lost a few decades wandering around the United States on heroin, and eventually uh, wound up in Vancouver's downtown east side. Um, I never actually got to talk to Bud. Tragically, he passed away in 2014, um, just about one year before I started writing this book. Um, but a wonderful journalist named Johan Hari, who wrote an absolutely amazing book I highly recommend called Chasing the Scream, the first and the last days of America's war on drugs. Um, he, uh, he was the last journalist to really sit down with Bud Osborne for extended, extended interviews. And, um, and I just emailed him out of the blue and I said, you don't know me, but you were in Vancouver a couple years ago and you spent time with this guy named Bud and you know, reading your book, it sounds like you have a lot of tape with this guy on it. Um, would you be willing to share that? And uh, to his credit, uh, Johan emailed me back. He said, yeah, I mean, Bud's amazing. I have, I have endless hours of tape. Um, yeah, I, I'll share that with you. So so Johan, I mean, who wrote, I think, one, cha- one chapter in Chasing the Scream on Bud, um, but had the material for an entire book, um, shared that material with me. And, and that's how but Osborne appears in Fighting for Space via those tapes from Johan Hari. So, I mean, it was just amazing. I just spent endless days and nights listening to those conversations. And and, um, and that's how Bud gets to be in the book. Wow, that's really special. I didn't realize that. Honestly, the reporting, the, the reporting on Bud in this book is so, it feels so intimate that I presume that you guys had speaking, spoken directly. Um, and I, it's really interesting to me to, to hear that. It just... It almost feels like an analogy. It's almost like, you know, as journalists, you guys coming together to tell this story in the same way that Anne Livingston and Bud Osborne came together to 
um, put flyers on on posts or the same way Mark Townsend and Liv Evan, Liz Evans came together to, to, to work at the Portland Hotel. Um, I really think one of the special things about this book is um, you mentioned hanging flyers on on signposts and you kind of do get these like really great details about the the steps that it sort of took in terms of creating critical mass um, and getting more and more public support for these policies. Um, I was thinking the listeners might enjoy hearing a little bit about the Killing Fields protest as maybe an example of something that, um, yeah, that is, is I think a relevant part of this, of this story because it does kind of signify, I think a change, if I'm not mistaken, a change in terms of public awareness or, or at least public interest in these policies. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned that we, that we, uh, you know, we told, we tell, I wrote the book to tell a story, you know, cause there is this wonderful chronological narrative there. We also hoped that the book would serve as a bit of a guide, right, for cities like Philadelphia, et cetera. Um, so we did try and, you know, sneak those, you know, if you want to, if you want to create an activist, um, uh, you know, if you want to create a day of action, here's what you do. If you want to lobby city hall, here's what you do. Um, but, but you know, we tried to hide it in a, in a story. And that's what we did with that protest. You mentioned the killing fields. Um, the, the genocide in Cambodia had been big in the news a few years earlier. And so... Liz Evans, Mark Townsend, Bud Osborne, um, and Livingston, you know, they were all in the downtown east side and they were watching overdose deaths skyrocket. And they said, you know, we don't need to talk about Cambodia uh, when we're concerned about a genocide that's happening here in Vancouver. Look at these numbers of HIV and overdose deaths. This is the killing fields. But nobody outside of the neighborhood knew that, you know, this downtown east side is small. It's, It's, you know, there's a lot packed in there, but it's really only like five by 10 blocks. Um, and so they said, how do we make people outside the downtown east side aware uh, of this tragedy, this genocide that's unfolding here? Well, let's call it the killing fields. And let's, let's invite the newspapers and let's tell them. And it wasn't just, you know, a, a day where came, people came out and were noisy and shut down traffic. They, they were very conscious about how they did it. Um, they wanted to get people's attention, shut down traffic and all that. But, but they didn't want to upset anybody either, right? And, and there's almost no faster way in the world to upset somebody than shutting down traffic. People get really, really upset about traffic. So they took a banner that said the killing fields and, you know, overdose deaths and all this, and they draped it across the six blocks, sorry, the six lanes um, of traffic that flow through the downtown east side, East Hastings Street. Um, and they, they, they shut down traffic and they handed out pamphlets through people's windows. But they only shut down traffic for five minutes, right? <laughs> you want to get people's attention, but you don't want to upset them. And so they, yeah, and Liz Evans, you know, who's this, um, you know, at the time, uh, this beautiful 20-something nurse with, you know, long blonde hair. She's going car to car, handing out pamphlets, saying, I'm really sorry that we're, we're you know, stopping you for a minute, but there's a crisis happening in this neighborhood. Um, Mark Townsend, who many, you know, in a past life actually worked in uh, set production for theater and that sort of thing. So he sort of came up to all this with an eye for, for production and drama. Um, so before he invited reporters down, he sort of scoped out various locations for where this demonstration should take place. And if we do it here, is there a vantage point from which a, a camera can capture this scene? Uh, are they going to get good enough tape for it to end up on the nightly news? Um, 
we have to, you know, create a pamphlet with our bullet points because reporters might not know about this stuff. So we're going to, you know, we're going to have to give them a, a real quick summary that can catch their attention and, and be, um, be relayed to the public in, you know, a, uh, what might be just a few seconds on the nightly news um all, all of this you know it looked like just a, a rowdy bunch of impoverished activists stopping traffic but it was all actually highly strategized um a lot went into it and it accomplished their goals um you know because they strategized this because they gave it some thought i mean it did end up on the nightly news and after that day after the killing fields um all of a sudden people outside of the downtown east side knew what was happening there I mean, it's an amazing story of, I agree, I think some amazing people. And you really get the, you really, I think by the end of the book, you have the sense of how um, ready for different roles or different activities, people who are trying to advocate for public policy changes might need to take. I feel like, you know, among all the characters in your book, I feel a little bit reluctant calling them characters, all the individuals, all the people presented in your book, um, we see them at times being advocates, at times being counselors, at times being emergency responders, at times being bureaucrats, at times just sort of administrating meetings, um, at times being artists and just expressing um, what they're seeing. Um, it's really, it's really. Um, I think I'd be, I would be really um, correct in emphasizing that this story really paints the picture of what it would really take to organize um, a movement of people based on a mutual public, a public health need. Um, well, and let's take a minute to, to really state, you know, what it was that was required to create this change in Vancouver. You no, know, I keep on mentioning Philadelphia because it's having, uh, I do that because it's having a safe injection debate right now um, and has actually just encountered some pretty serious setbacks. Um, Today, you know, in 2020, Vancouver pats itself on the back for all the progressive work it's done with harm reduction, pioneering needle exchange, and then pioneering injection sites, and pioneering drug user activism. But but none of that happened overnight. I mean, North America's first injection facility, Insight, opened in Vancouver in 2003. But the downtown East Side and these activists we've mentioned, Bud Osborne, etc., you know, they, they began lobbying for Insight way back in 1993. It was an entire decade of really hard work, public education campaigns, bringing people over from Europe to talk about their injection sites, um, showing up at city council meetings. It was an entire decade of education and activism and public consultation, etc. that was required before Insight opened in 2003. And then even then the fight wasn't over. The federal government on the other side of Canada took Insight to court in 2006 and Insight wasn't uh, declared officially legal by the Supreme Court of Canada until 2011. So, you know, this battle for, for North America's first injection facility that, that I tell in Fighting for Space goes right from 1991, 92, 93, all the way up to 2011. It, you know, it was, Vancouver pats itself on the back for insight and in supervised injection today, but it was a 20-year battle to have that that building declared, you know, safe to stay open. Um, this stuff is was not easy. Yeah, and it's amazing. And I have to say, I, again, to compliment Fighting for Space, it really does have the sense of an epic. It does feel like we start in the early 90s um, and over really over 30 years, 
um, you know, the, the growth from back alley to, well, from no back alley to having back alley to then having insight, um, is pretty amazing. Um, I also just want to make sure that, um, you know, listeners know that your book does a great job of also supporting, um, your reporting around the work of, of these advocates, but also supporting it with informing it with, um, academic research. I think there's three, in particular, three researchers that you cite that are really helpful to contextualize sort of the evidence base around these policies. Um, I was thinking Bruce Alexander, Mark Lewis, and Gabor Mate. And I was wondering if, if you agree with those three would be the primary, and if you want to give it a sort of a snapshot of how you think their, their, um, their work in has and informs the 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 work that um you present in fighting for space i mean it, it was really this you know it's a cliche but there was really this perfect storm that came behind harm reduction in vancouver early, in the early 90s to support it and take it off the ground i mean you had nonprofit housing providers like liz evans and mark townsend who were willing to work with drug users and their allies like bud osborne and Ann livingston and at the same time you know these sometimes these these things just happen at the same time. You had this loose group of researchers that were also there, that were also really interested in addiction, that began to break down old paradigms and change how we look look at, at drug use and addiction. And then that was people like Bruce Alexander, and then a few years later, like Gabor Maté, and then a few years later, like Mark Lewis, saying, you know, maybe maybe people aren't just using drugs because they're there. Maybe they're using drugs because there's something wrong with the world that they live in and there's something wrong with their environment and there's something wrong that happened in their past. And and if, it, if we're wrong about the reasons for which people are using drugs, um, maybe that changes our, our ideas for solutions. And that's what you know started to happen in Vancouver with with people like that pushing those, no theor- those new theories. Um, there were also people like um, Evan Wood, and um, Thomas Kerr, um, a, a couple of younger researchers um, who weren't necessarily pushing new paradigms like that previous set of researchers you mentioned were, but were keeping a really close eye on what was happening in the downtown east side and uh, convinced their, their funders to give them some money to study it. And so you have this really neat before and after picture of harm reduction in Vancouver that exists in very few other places around the world where you had... Thomas Kerr and Evan Wood in the neighborhood before harm reduction and in the neighborhood after harm reduction, uh, studying the issue, publishing academic papers. Um, you, like, you, like these guys are so productive; it's amazing. They're, you know, the the names Evan Wood and Thomas Kerr appear on literally hundreds of papers um, if you go and find them online. Um, and so, you know, again, this perfect storm. Not only do you have people working to to pioneer and advance harm reduction, but you have um, people like Gabor Mate pioneering new new um, theories of addiction, and then Thomas Kerr and Evan Wood taking before and after pictures and publishing those pictures in peer-reviewed journals saying, you know, here's the difference that harm reduction can make. Look at our hep C and HIV numbers. They've really, really declined since we started uh, deploying these programs. Um, I was going to ask about Rat Park. Do you think, um, just briefly, I think Rat Park is something that really illustrates, I think, some of the some of the ideas in the book. Could you share just maybe a few minutes on Rat Park for our listeners? 
Yeah, Rat Park was a really interesting experiment that occurred at a university in Vancouver by a researcher named Dr. Bruce Alexander. Um, you know, we have to sort of forget what we know now about addiction, about drug use, to, to really understand what Bruce Alexander was doing. You know, now it's accepted that addiction is the result of um, genetic, genetic, biological, and environmental factors. Back then, addiction was understood to largely be the result of drugs. If you did drugs, you were addicted. It was the drug that made you addicted. And you know, if you used drugs, you were therefore weak to be using drugs. You were there was something wrong with you to be using drugs. Bruce Alexander wasn't quite sure that that's the way things were. Um, he believed it because everybody believed it at the time. Drugs make you addicted. But he, he was a researcher, so he wanted to test it. He first tested that, that theory, is it the drugs? So he took, he took rats and he put them in something called a Skinner box, which is essentially just an isolation chamber. Um, it's a box with a rat in it. And you can you know, make some basic modifications to give the rat some minimal control over its own environment. For example, press a lever and you get a food pellet. The rat will pretty quickly understand how that lever works and that you know, they'll understand the cause and effect it produces a food pellet. Uh, similarly, the rat, or the rat will understand if he presses a lever and receives a shot of morphine, um, he'll understand if he presses that lever again, he'll receive a shot of morphine. So Bruce Alexander was playing with these Skinner boxes and these rats, and they appeared to confirm that that, that primitive theory of addiction. Um, the rat would press the lever over and over again, receiving more and more morphine. Okay, so it looks like, it looks like drugs are addictive. But, you know, he looked at this and he, he said, but we're not really giving the rat any other choice. You know, it's in, a, it's in an isolation chamber with only a lever that provides it with morphine. What if we changed the environment? And, and so that's what they did. They created something called Rat Park in a, in a, in a classroom at Simon Fraser University. Um, and instead of a nice, a small isolation chamber, they created a big open space. Um, they put some wood chips in there. They actually painted the walls with trees. They gave the the rats, those little, little running wheels they play in. And they let rats, uh, female rats and male rats, um, into the chamber together um, to create, um, you know, socialization. And then they introduced the same levers with the, the same morphine. And lo and behold, um, the rats showed significantly less interest in the morphine. Now, how can that be? If drugs are addictive, um, if that's what causes addiction, why would the results not be the same? can sound like it was sort of a given, though of course if, if you know they have access to different stimuli, they'll, they'll interact with that stimuli. Um, but you know, that wasn't the view in the 1950s when these experiments were done. Um, it, was, it was actually quite a shock to see that when the rats uh, had a significant change in their environment, they were significantly less interested in drugs. And the implications here, I mean, if you take it to the next step, the implications are quite astounding. Um, if we want to respond to drugs and addiction, maybe we shouldn't just focus on the drug, on criminalization, on punishment. Maybe we should focus on changing people's environment. Yeah, I think that's really special about the book is how this all kind of ties together in ways that it's applicable to policy. The idea that we can get reports from, um, you know, from active 
IV drug users. Well, and, and I mean, it wasn't quite so conscious, but Bruce Alexander and these rat park experiments were happening literally just down the street from Vancouver's downtown east side where an overdose crisis was unfolding. And then you have the Portland Hotel Society and uh, Liz Evans and Mark Townsend show up and begin to give people, you know, a significantly uh, kinder environment, giving people a home where they wouldn't be evicted for using drugs, where they wouldn't be evicted um, if somebody overdoses, um, telling people you live here now and, and we're going to remove the stress of a potential eviction and we're going to give you a kinder environment. You know, Liz Evans and Mark Townsend weren't so consciously trying to create a rat park or whatever, but they were right around the same time that those experiments were being done a few years later, I guess. Um, they were creating, you know, a kinder environment, which would have the unintended consequence of um, letting people feel okay while using less drugs. And the book definitely touches on housing policy and housing first and supportive housing. And I'm curious, would you say housing policy is, well, let me just, I'll just open the question more generally. In terms of policy, having heard from the folks on the front line, having heard from the researchers, what do you think are the key policy issues or what could we learn from fighting fighting for space? I mean, you, you were right the first time. Housing first was huge. Um, interestingly, we weren't calling it housing first, though. Um, if you Google housing first, it, it's a set of policies, social policies, which basically say you get supportive housing before anything else. You don't need to stop using drugs. Um, you're not even going to get kicked out if we find you using drugs inside our buildings. Just like the name says, it's housing first. You get housing no matter what. It's unconditional. Um, in 1991, long before, you know, people in New York and Seattle where, where housing first um, receives most of its credit for first being established, um, even before then, before we were calling it housing first, Liz Evans, you know, this young 20-something nurse, was in Vancouver's downtown east side, taking people in off the street, moving them into the Portland Hotel, and telling them, um, you live here now, and this is your home, and this will always be your home, where we're going to remove the stress of a potential eviction if you experience a mental health outburst, if you are caught using injection drugs, we're not going to kick you out, you live here now. And Liz didn't have any grand plan in her mind, and she wasn't calling it housing first. She hadn't read about that yet. She was just trying to be kind to people. Literally, I mean, really, that's it. She was just trying to be kind. But it had these really neat unintended consequences when you removed the potential stress, the threat of an eviction for using drugs or having a mental health outburst. Those tenants used less drugs and had fewer mental health outbursts. And, you know, a year, a year or so in, uh, Liz and then Mark Townsend began to sort of catch on to this and expand the policies into other buildings in the downtown east side. Um, you know, just creating this, kind, this kinder environment that didn't push people so hard uh, into using drugs and experiencing mental health outbursts. Uh, you know, fast forward 10, 20 years, and we call this housing, housing first, and it's, you know, a social paradigm integrated in a growing number of programs across North America. But in the early, early, early 1990s, it was really just Liz Evans trying to be as kind as she could to her tenants. Well, I really appreciate your time. I think I've taken up enough. And I really recommend that everybody um, who's interested in harm reduction, who's interested in public health policy, 
who's interested in housing policy or in general interested in how grass mo grassroots movements can give a voice to otherwise unheard communities. Um, I think this is a must read. Um, Travis, before we go, I'd just like to see, is there anything new that you're working on that you'd like to let our, read our listeners know about or any future projects that we you could share? Um, I am in the early stages of a second book about harm reduction for the New Press, an American publisher. Um, you know, we're still probably about a, a year at least away from publication, but that's something that's on the horizon. If, um, if there's anything else I can get out there with you, uh, I mean, it, I think we have to mention the coronavirus, COVID-19, because you, know, you and I are doing this interview over the telephone, both under you know stay-at-home orders and quarantine. Um, and that's just really the context for everything that's happening in the, in the world right now. Um, the coronavirus is affecting marginalized communities, you know, harder than anybody. And impoverished drug user communities, um, even, you know, hardest among marginalized communities. Um, there's still an overdose crisis playing out across the continent. And for five years in response to that crisis, you know, we've been telling drug users, your number one rule do not use alone. You know, we've been hammering that message for five years. Do not use drugs alone. If you use drugs alone, you can die. Do not use drugs alone. And now we're telling everybody, stay alone. Social social distancing, you know, stay-at-home orders, isolation, um, which puts drug users in a really dangerous spot. They're still addicted to drugs. They're still using drugs. Their supply has been interrupted. So... Now, there's more uncertainty introduced in the drug market. Healthcare programs have shut down around the country, so they're having you know trouble finding clean needles, and they're being told to social distance, um, to stay alone. Um, it's it's not receiving attention, but it you know it is it is a disaster within a disaster that that's happening among IV drug user populations under COVID nineteen, um, and we need to be talking about that, and, and we need healthcare providers. Um, thinking more about that population and how they can help them. Well, thanks, Travis. I really appreciate your insight. I really appreciate the work that you did to create this book, Fighting for Space. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you and take care. Thank you so much for having me.